Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Well, good evening, everyone. First thing we need to do is get to get to acquainted Jewish style. Now, first of all, I think I, I want to save you the disappointment later. Hananiel Ministries is a mission to reach Jewish people the gospel. It's been there since 1911. Uh, I haven't been there quite that long. But the ministry has, and it's always been an outreach to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But people assume that if you're in Jewish missions, you also have to be Jewish by birth. And people will come up to me sometimes and ask, how did your family react when you no longer went to synagogue? And then I tell them I'm not Jewish. And all of a sudden I get a look like, oh, well, I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. Nevertheless, Romans 11 tells us that through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. So Gentiles sometimes are a better missionary to reach the Jewish people of the gospel because they consider their own traitors. Now, my wife, Sharon, she happens to be a Jewish believer, and she's a a, a wonderful soloist. She's recorded uh, three Messianic music CDs. Uh, This is a busy time of year, and I have to watch how many events I take her to because she has multiple sclerosis, and so fatigue is a big thing for for her. But this evening, I'm about to share with you something that's very special to me. It's called Messiah in the Passover. It's actually the beginning of sometimes what I do is a whole conference on Messiah in the Feast of Israel. There are four feasts in the spring, a picture of Christ at his first coming, three festivals in the fall, a picture of Christ at his second coming, where I sound the shofar for Rosh Hashanah. Oh, I didn't say it right. I'm from Philly. Rosh Hashanah. And Yom Kippur, I dress in a high priest robe where we share how Christ is pictured in that. Oh, I said that wrong too. Yom Kippur. And so for those Jewish festivals, we, we try and show how Christ is pictured in them. Tonight's presentation is called Messiah and the Passover, and I hope you'll be able to shift gears with me from time to time. I'll be sharing what it says under the law about Passover, and then sometimes we'll go to what's going on today in a modern-day Jewish home. But most importantly, whenever we come to a place where something has a, is a, a ministry that, that's directly connected with Jesus, I will stop and we'll also share that too, because... Uh, it was on the night before Jesus died that he was celebrating Passover with his disciples. As a matter of fact, I'd like to read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, with desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now I have a question for you. Did you hear what Jesus said? With desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. My question to you is, how long did Jesus have that desire? Isn't he God in the flesh? That means that from all eternity past, he was looking forward to that night. Because on that night, he was going to take what the Jewish people had already been celebrating for 1,400 years, the story of their redemption from Egypt. And on that night, he's going to give it a whole new message of redemption when he says, from now on, when you do this, what? Do this in remembrance of me. Now, I said I would give you the the Jewish greeting. And the way the Jewish people say hello is the same words 
in, in Israel today that Jesus said to the disciples when he appeared to him in the upper room following the resurrection. Those words are peace unto you, only they don't speak English, they speak Hebrew. And the way you say peace unto you is shalom alechem. And if someone gives you that greeting, it's only cordial to say hello back. And what you do is you reverse it and say it backwards. Unto you be peace or Alechem Shalom. Let's try that. I'll give you the greeting. You return it. Shalom Alechem. Oh, no, that's way too Gentile. In order to say Alechem properly, you have to pretend you have a piece of matzah stuck in your throat and you're trying to get it because the accent is on the ch in Alech. All right, let's try it again. Shalom Alechem. That was a hearty handshake. Well, thank you. We do bring you peace from Philadelphia, one that surpasses all understanding, and we're about to share with you what Passover is this evening. However, Passover begins weeks in advance. As a matter of fact, mom has to prepare the house because Passover is a unique festival. It's kind of like two feasts in one. Originally, in Leviticus 23, verse 4, it says the 14th day of the, of the month of Nisan would be their first month, and that would be the, the one-day celebration of Passover. But the seven days that follow it are a separate festival called in Hebrew Hag HaMatzot, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Matzot is plural for the bread that's used during Passover, which is Matzah. Well, over the years, the, the, the Jewish people kind of put all eight days together because you're not allowed to have any leaven in the home. No Wonder Bread, no Hostess Twinkies, no Tasty Cake. Nothing with yeast is allowed in the home for the entire eight days. So they just pushed it all together and called it Passover or Unleavened Bread. And the gospel writers do the same. One gospel writer says, now the day the Passover must be killed, referring to this time uh, in the Bible. And the other, uh, one of the other gospel writers say, now, when the Feast of Unleavened Bread came, but they're really referring to this entire eight days. So there are two festivals in one. There's also two points of um, change in the, in the ministry. Passover has both serious business, rituals that must be performed or you don't have a whole Passover. At the same time, it's a, a time for joy. Right in the middle of the presentation, Dad plays a game of hide-and-go-seek with the kids. And really what you're looking at is a giant children's sermon because the Passover is designed for the little eyes of the home, for the father to teach the children, and then the next generation, and so on and so on. As a matter of fact, dad's not always accustomed to being a public speaker, so they give him a special book. It's called a Haggadah. And Haggadah is Hebrew for from Exodus 13, 7, Vihagita, which means, in that day you will tell your son, saying, this is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when he brought me forth out of the land of Egypt. So he has a guidebook to guide him. And well, since they're not allowed to have any leaven in the home during the entire eight days, mom has to prepare for that period ahead of time. You want to use up all the products ahead of time so that when Passover occurs, you only eat the products that are marked kosher for Passover and have no leaven in them. Well, sure enough... When dad gets home, one of the rituals before we can even start our Passover is called a bedechat chumetz, the searching for leaven. Dad goes through the house and he double checks on mom's work, making sure the kids didn't hide any pretzels anywhere or anything like that. And Jewish ladies are smart. He takes, well, what the, the father walks around with the, these two religious articles, a wooden spoon and a feather to see if he can find any breadcrumbs or anything like that. And Jewish ladies, as I said, are, are pretty smart. They know what it's like. And ladies, you'll appreciate this too. 
they know what it's like to have their husband go out and double check on their work. Now, if he's going to make sure that there's no leaven in the home, she doesn't want to make the search harder than it took to get ready for the Passover. So what she does is she'll put a few crumbs in an obvious place. Why? So dad stops looking. You understand, ladies? You know, something subtle, like a loaf of bread in the middle of the sofa. Aha! Look what you missed! And then with those few crumbs and all the leaven that hasn't been used up by Passover time, in ancient time, they would have a bonfire going in the center of town where they would throw away all the leaven and ask God in a prayer to remove from them any responsibility for any leaven that they still can't find. Now, that was like when it was really serious. You see, according to the law, if any Jewish family had any leaven in their home during Passover, that family was to be destroyed. Well, they're not killing them any longer for that. So over the years, the Jewish ladies seem to get around the rules. What oftentimes happens is when Passover occurs, if they have leftover bread, rolls, or cake, or whatever, they'll put it in a shopping bag, cover it with an aluminum foil, and then sell it to a Gentile neighbor for a week. Then at the end of the week, they buy it back and keep it in their house the whole time. You see, I'm sorry, that way you can throw away your leaven and eat it too. I apologize. I apologize. All right, we made our search. Passover occurs, and when Passover occurs, when, when the night of Passover occurs, it counts as a Sabbath day. So if the Passover occurs on a different day, other than their normal Saturday Sabbath, they will have two Sabbaths that week. And the lady of the house lights the candles at sundown because it counts as a Sabbath day, and kindling lights on the Sabbath constitutes work, so they have to light it precisely at sundown. And that starts the beginning of our Passover. Now, Passover has, as it were, an outline. And the outline is that during the course of the meal, they will have four times they will sip from a cup. For my demonstration purposes, I put four cups up here. But in reality, everybody has one cup. And according to the code of Jewish law, that cup should be filled with a red-colored wine to remind them of the price of the lamb that was the price for their redemption. No other festival do they have a specific requirement. I'm using grape juice, just so you know. But that's what would normally be done. And so what they do is they have four times that they sip a cup from the Passover. And each one of those cups has been given a title based upon the promises that go inside, coincide with Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. For example, the first cup is called the Kiddush cup, the cup of sanctification. And it goes with a promise in Exodus 6, 6. I will take you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Notice the sanctification or the separation. I will separate you from the Egyptians. The second cup is called the cup of judgment or the cup of plagues. uh, when, When it says, I will rid you of their bondage. Those two cups are part of, and the the way, of course, that God rid them of their bondage was through the use of the ten plagues. Those two cups are before dinner. Then the dinner is actually a ceremony as part of the ceremony. You don't eat and then have do Passover or vice versa. You do ceremony, Passover, ceremony. After the dinner's over, there's two more ceremonial cups. The third cup of the meal is called the cup of redemption. Why? Because in Exodus 6, 6 says, I will redeem you with outstretched arms and great judgments. 
And the fourth cup is called the cup of praise or the cup of acceptance because it says, I will take you to me to be a people. Some translations, I'll take you up to be a holy people. I'll take you to me to be a people. Those are the four cups for every Passover, and it just so happens that at least two of them are mentioned as part of the Last Supper. I'm in the Gospel of Luke again, in Luke 22, where I was earlier. In verse 17, it says, And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. Now, if you were just reading that, you might have thought that was the cup that was used for the Lord's Supper. Not so. That cup is mentioned three verses later, in Luke 22, verse 20, when it says, Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Well, it just so happens that the first cup after supper happens to be the third cup of the meal, or what we were, what did the Jewish people call it? The cup of redemption. Now, I don't think it was a coincidence. I think Jesus specifically chose that one because of the redemption that he would provide. So those are the four cups. They're part of the Passover demonstration that I'm doing now, but there's also another set of fours. There's four questions. Every Passover, the youngest member of the family is asked to come up and, like a, like a canter wooden synagogue, sing four questions to his father. Um, reason being is that these four questions are going to help the father answer those questions and tell the story of the Passover. Um, the reason that also they would use the youngest member of the family is because then everybody gets a turn sooner or later. And again, remember, this is a children's sermon. If it were possible, I would want to put all of you around the table because you're going to have to pretend this is not in Calvary Chapel tonight. This is not in a church. This is done in the home. And as I said, dad's leading his family through the service. The four questions, well, I'll give you a sample of the first one. The boy might come up and he's saying it's before his dad and he'll say, and the question he asked his father is, why is this night different from all other nights? On all other nights, we can eat either bread or matzah. Why tonight only matzah? On all other nights, the second question is, on all other nights, we do not dip our vegetables even once. Why tonight do we dip them twice? The third question, on all other nights we can eat any vegetable. Why tonight only moror? I'll explain what that is when I get to it. And the fourth and final question is, on all other nights we eat either sitting up or reclining. Why tonight do we all recline? Well, all those items or all those questions are answered by items that are found on what is referred to as a Seder plate. In a Jewish home, it might be something really attractive like this and it would be hanging up on the wall throughout the year. But for Passover, it comes down off the wall, and the father and mother place things on here to help teach the children the story. Uh, So I said all the items. Well, there's also something else that's going to be used for the Passover to help tell the story, and this is called a matzotash, a matzah container. And it's an envelope, and it would have three layers inside in every Jewish home throughout the world with matzah inside of it to tell tell the story of Passover. I happen to have, for demonstration purposes, a combination kit. I have a Seder plate on top and my container for matzah underneath, so I really have one of these here. And this is rather extravagant. You might find this in a rabbi's home. 
As a matter of fact, the individual from where I purchased this is uh, there's a gift shop in Philadelphia that's run by a rabbi and his wife, and I get a lot of my Jewish elements there. And you can, it's funny because he knows who I am and he knows what I do because we've talked to him about these things before. And whenever, whenever I uh, think about it, um, I can always see, I can see the moral dilemma on his face when I come in the shop. You can understand, he's, should I sell this stuff to this Gentile? He's going to be telling my Jewish people about believing in Jesus. Well, he sold me this, and he sold me this, and he sold me this. Some things come first, that's all I'm going to say. Here's my, here's my combination kit, the Seder plate on top, and I don't know, even in the back, you might be able to see, can you see there's three trays there? By the way, if any of you want to, this is a very visual presentation. I know you got your special seats, but we got a whole front row up here if you wanted to move up and, and watch them just jumping out of their seats. Okay, here we are. This is, so I said that all the items that are on the Seder plate will help to answer those four questions except that last question. Remember, on all other nights we eat either sitting up or reclining. Why tonight do we all recline? It was only for the very first Passover that they were told to eat it like this, with their loins girded, their shoes on their feet, and their staff in their hand. And they had to eat it in haste because they had to leave that night. They don't do that anymore. They don't stand around and hold a staff like they're going to leave Egypt. As a matter of fact, they do just the opposite. They want to exaggerate their freedom. And it's an Eastern custom to recline to the left during the course of the meal to exaggerate your freedom. Today, dad oftentimes just puts a couple pillows behind his back to, to remind him to recline at least during the time when they sip the four cups. Because now that we're in upright tape, chairs and tables, everything's a little different than it was originally at the time of Christ. Uh, and to some, because they would have relaxed on the floor and everybody would have been reclining to the left. And as they sat around whatever table they would have had all the way around the table. As a matter of fact, doesn't the one gospel account recall that John was leaning on the master's bosom? That means he was sitting immediately to Jesus's right. And in truth, that they would have all been reclining to the left all the way around the table. But as soon as I say that, that's going to really make a big mess out of all our paintings, isn't it? You know what I'm referring to, because when I say the words, the Last Supper, doesn't a picture come into your mind? Well, I got a few problems with that painting. First and foremost, everybody in it looks so handsomely Italian. And they're all sitting on one side of the table. Who does that? Do you do that in your house? The only way they did that is that the painter was in the room. And said, all right, everybody wants to get in a painting with Jesus. Sit on that side of the table. But my biggest problem of all with the painting, The Last Supper, is you look the next time you're in front of it. Right around here on the table, you'll find little tiny Italian dinner rolls at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, the painter's name was Leonardo... Now, why do you think everybody looks so Italian? I'm sorry, Leonardo. The Last Supper wasn't held in Rome. It was held in Jerusalem. They would have been little five-foot-four Jewish guys leaning on one another all the way, on one another, everybody leaning on one another like, like we do in the body of Christ. So if you have the painting, you can fix it when you get home. Just push everybody over to the left and erase those rolls. They do not belong at the Last Supper. I'm sorry. All right. First question, on all other nights, we do not eat any bread. Why tonight only matzah? 
either from the top or the bottom container. The father asks everybody to break off a piece of matzah, and he tells them that when they left the land of Egypt, they had to leave it in haste. They had no time to let the dough sit out for leavening. And so when it came out, it came out flat. Interestingly enough, God in Exodus chapter 13, he says, look, they... This is wonderful. In his, in his heart, he was saying, this is wonderful. From now on, whenever you do this festival, you're going to eat this festival with unleavened bread and bitter herbs because the Lord with his strong hand brought you out of the land of Egypt. You will eat no leavened bread. See, the kneading troughs were already packed to go, so they had no time to knead the dough. Kneading the dough requires the use of the work of men's hands. So what God was saying You want to tell a story of me taking you out of Egypt? Get your hands out of the dough. Because the Lord with his strong hand brought you out of the land of Egypt. You will eat no leavened bread. And he saw that as a wonderful visual aid. Gee, is there any New Testament correlation to where we might see the Lord doing the work on your behalf? How about Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of what? works lest any man should boast all right on all other nights we do not dip our vegetables even one time why tonight twice in the middle of my seder plate is a as a dish of salt water now remember this is a children's sermon so we're trying to teach the children uh, a few things and what they do is they take a piece of parsley it's called carpus and what they'll do is they dip it two times in the salt water and they tell the children well one one Haggadah says uh, this represents Israel, the green, and the salt water represents the Red Sea. So they get to tell the children how God parted the Red Sea and the children of Israel went through on dry ground. But they also say the dipping perhaps for the second time was to remind them of the hyssop that was dipped and sprinkled on the top of the door and on the two side posts on the night of the 10th plague that allowed them to pass through. And so after they dip the parsley in the salt water and they, everybody gets the wonderful joy of eating it. Okay. <laughs> this is an important cup in the presentation too. This is the speaker's cup. <laughs> Interestingly enough, this portion at the Last Supper was also the first time that Jesus points out Judas as his betrayer at the Last Supper. Did you hear what I just said? It's the first of two occasions at the Last Supper where Jesus points out Judas as a betrayer. This one's in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. Matthew, chapter 26, and I'm beginning in verse 20. When the evening was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said... Verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. They were exceedingly sorrowful, began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same will betray me. By the way, if you hear me using the King James, it's because I know I can preach anywhere when I use it. Does that make sense? I, there, nobody tells me if I can't use it. Only some churches that I have to use it. There's, that's some, okay? All right, just so you understand. He that dips his hand with me in the dish, the same will betray me. What apparently happened at the Last Supper, well, it's easy to understand, 13 men sitting around the table, both of them put their hand in the dish at the same time. 
But Jesus said to, the, that to, him, to them all while they were eating. And this is the first thing that, they parta- that, that I partook of tonight. Th- this would be the first item that they would have taken as well. So I believe that they had already dipped and eaten and were eating while Jesus made the announcement. And that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because if they haven't put their hand in the dish yet and Jesus made the announcement already, put yourself in Judas' shoes. What are, you, are you going to run up? Oh, yeah, that's me. I'm the betrayer. I'm going to betray you. I'm going to put my hand in. No, I don't think Jesus was trying to embarrass Judas at the Last Supper. I think Jesus said those words for one person's ears only, Judas himself. Because Judas thinks he's going to go out and do this behind the Lord's back. And what Jesus was doing was showing him one one more form of mercy, just demonstrating to him that he knows all things and he knows that he's about to go out and betray him later. The only two that would have known that would have been him and Judas. The next item, on all other nights we can eat any vegetable. Why tonight more or? Everyone takes a piece of matzah. They always say about the size of an olive. And they would dip it in the center dish here of moror and then eat it. And all I'm going to tell you before I eat it is this. The moror you eat this, the moror you'll know about it because it's horseradish. With a good kick, too. (coughs) Well, according to the code of Jewish law, (laughs) I'm supposed to eat enough to bring a tear to my eye. And my adjusting glasses, if you, you might not be able to tell, but I did. The reason for that was the Egyptians had embittered their lives. And so imagine the children biting down on horseradish for the first time. They're realizing that slavery is not something joyful but painful, but they're also thankful that's what, what God had delivered them from. Um, let's see, on all other nights... We can eat, let's see, charoseth is the next item on the Seder plate. The, uh, everyone takes two pieces of matzah, and there's a special mixture of chopped apples and cinnamon and mixed nuts, and it's ground down to look like mortar because they're telling the children of the incident what happened when Moses went first before Pharaoh and said, we want to worship God in the wilderness. Pharaoh assumed they were lazy and idle and had plenty of time on their hands. So he said, from now on, you have to make the same number of bricks. Remember, they were slaves to the Egyptians. They were making the cities. From now on, you have to make the same number of bricks you did the day before, only now we're not going to cut any straw for you. But you cannot diminish one brick from the day before. Well, the Jewish people ran through the field. They, they grabbed dry grass, whatever they could to make the mud stick. But when you squeeze this together and make a little sandwich out of it, they're actually t- telling the children, oh, this represents the, the brick made with unusual mixture of ingredients. The problem is when you eat this, this is very sweet to the taste. And it's optional now, but at one time it wasn't optional. Long time ago, dad would do this for everybody at the table. He would hand it to them. And the rabbis deliberated over the fact, it's sweet to the taste. Why would we want the children to remember increased or enforced labor with something so sweet so dad was supposed to dip it first in the horseradish and then hand it to them? And that became the second occasion, we believe, at the Last Supper when Jesus also pointed out Judas as his betrayer. This one's from the Gospel of John, chapter 13. In John, chapter 13, 
beginning in verse 21 I'm reading. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, verily, verily, or truly, truly. By the way, the one in Matthew only had one truly. This is almost like he's saying it a second time. Truly, truly, I say unto you that one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked upon one another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, He it is to whom I give a sop when I have dipped it. Some will translate it, some he it is to whom I give a piece of bread, some to whom I give a morsel when I have dipped it. And after he dipped it, he gave it to Judas, and he said, what you do, do quickly. Now, first, I want you to notice that there is actually two different... The only thing they have in common is the word dip, but it was twice. The first time was, he that dips his hand with me in the dish, the same will betray me. This is different. He it is to whom I give a morsel, a piece of bread, a sop, when I myself, when I have dipped it, and after he dipped it, he gave it to Judas. Normally, that would be a point of honor. You would give it to your oldest son first. You would give it to a guest who is from out of town. So he's giving it to Judas and actually making him look important. The irony of all that is that um, the, I believe the disciples at one point were arguing during the Passover, who would be the greatest among them? Perhaps this is what stirred it up. But all, the, all they thought, he says, what you do, do quickly. And he went out and it was night. All they assumed that he was doing was going out to buy more for the Passover. I think it changes their relationship. Because up until now, and I think we take it for granted, that Jesus heartached over the relationship with him and Judas. Because the psalmist tells us what was in his heart. It would have been easier to take the betrayal from an enemy. But what does it say? My own familiar friend has lifted up his heel against me, and he's now about to change their relationship from something that was once somewhere sweet into now something that is going to be what? Quite bitter. And so it's almost like passing the baton of the change in their relationship. Next item on the Seder plate was not part of the original Passover, was not part of the Last Supper. So why am I bringing it up? Because it's in a modern-day Jewish home. They place a hard-boiled egg on the, on the plate because they want to teach the children that along with this, while the temple was standing, we not only had a sacrificial offering, they also had a free will offering. And so a hen normally lays an egg once a day. First thing in the morning, it's offering its best to God. So they roast it and make it a sacrifice called hagiga and call it sacrifice, and they tell the children, so we too, like the hen gives their best to God each day, we should do the same. We should always offer our best up to God each and every day. About this point in time, they would partake of the second cup of the meal, called the cup of judgment or the cup of plagues, but before they would drink it, the Father has everybody instruct them to take their pinky and remove ten drops of wine from the cup. As they do, they recite the ten plagues which God performed upon the Egyptians. Reason being is, well, wine normally is a symbol of joy. We're removing ten drops of our joy in deference to the Egyptians who had to suffer so that we might be set free. So they, re- they recite all the plagues. And 
Uh, I think it's one thing to remember from this, at least this one little incident, the importance of why God chose those 10 plagues on the Egyptians. It wasn't that God was up in heaven saying, oh, I know what I can do to the Egyptians. I'll send them a bunch of lice next. There was a design and a pattern to those 10 plagues. According to Exodus 12, 12, upon all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Every one of those plagues was to show that Jehovah was stronger than an Egyptian god. For example, they worshiped the Nile. They called it the giver of life. Moses puts his staff in it, turned to blood, became the giver of death. They used to worship these reptilian-looking creatures. Well, they weren't worshiping frogs when they were all over the land. And one of the plagues was darkness. One of the Egyptian gods was Ra, the sun god. The plague of darkness was not over where the Jewish people were, but just where the Egyptians were. And there was nothing that Pharaoh could do to break through that plague. And if I'm right, if I started reading through the plagues, you start reading through them, you realize that when the, I think it was the locust, I think Pharaoh had it. At one point, Pharaoh was willing to let them go. But the scripture keeps saying God hardened Pharaoh's heart that he wouldn't let him go. Reason why? He wasn't done beating up all their gods yet. See, sometimes for God's greater glory in the end, he can harden someone's heart. As a matter of fact, for us Gentile believers, we have to remember that God gave the Jewish people the spirit of slumber, Romans 11, and eyes that they would not see, so that through their fall, salvation would come to the Gentiles. Amen? So God didn't want to be just Lord of the Jews. He wanted to be Lord of the Gentiles also. And even the last plague, the death of the firstborn, that took Pharaoh's son's life. Pharaoh himself was an Egyptian god. And he took, and by taking, he couldn't stop the death of his own son. And that boy would have been the next god in Egypt. And so indeed, God did perform judgment upon all the gods of Egypt. Right around now, mom might slip off and go get the matzo ball soup ready, get, start to get the meal ready because we're about to get to the, that middle portion of the Passover. And what happened is the father will do a few things, but one of them is that he will take the middle layer of matzah. And in every Haggadah, it, there's a, the instruction seems to be the same. It says, on the tray lie three layers of matzah. The ceremony calls for the breaking of the middle layer in half as best as he can and put one half right back where he got it from, right down in the middle layer. And then with a linen cloth, he's to take it and wrap it up, and then he hides it. After the dinner, the children will go looking for it, and that's how they play hide-and-go-seek. Oftentimes, what he does is he just slips it behind his back between the pillows. Nothing is said about why he just goes ahead and about his own business. And then he pick up maybe the last item on the Seder plate, which would be the shank bone of a lamb. And he tries to communicate to the children what it must have been like on the night of the 10th plague because that was the most severe of all. Because on that night, he'll tell the children that you could hear the angel of death going through the land of Egypt that night. And if you think about it for a moment, he's right. You might not hear the angel of death and what he did, but you would have heard his results because as house after house lost their firstborn, what would start, we'd start to hear, crying. And if you know anything about the Eastern peoples, they wail and moan over their dead. But it got louder and louder as the night went on, as they were all crying. So the father in the Jewish home even tells him, it was so serious, I got to tell you a little story. And he tells him a, a made-up story about a boy named, we'll call him Herbie. He was a Jewish boy in the land of Egypt, and he reminded his dad on the night of the plague that, 
Hey, Dad, remember what Moses told us? He told us to bring a lamb in that we did on the 10th day of the month, four days ago. And that lamb had to be without blemish and without spot. And we checked it out, no problem. And after four days now, today, tonight, we're supposed to take the lamb, we're supposed to kill the lamb, place the blood in the basin, put it at the doorstep, and with hyssop, sprinkle it on the top of the door and on two side posts, because when the angel of death goes to the land of Egypt tonight, he's going to kill the firstborn, and I'm the oldest. That's what he tries to communicate to the children. And what he then says, he goes on, and he goes, as long as it takes mom to get the food ready, sometimes it's the length of the story. But what he tries to communicate is somehow the boy's dad got home late from work. And as he got home, the angel of death had already started down their street too. And at the last possible moment, the angel of death had gotten over Herbie's house too and was getting ready to descend on it. But at the last moment, dad quickly grabbed the hyssop from his neighbor because I guess they were going to share a lamb. They were a small house. And he grabbed the hyssop and he sprinkled it on the top of the door and on the two side posts just as the angel of death was going to go into the home. But instead, he sees the blood and does what? Passes over the home. And the little children oftentimes, they go, whoosh because they were so glad to hear that Herbie didn't have to die. Well, I think that story communicates something rather important. Being Jewish didn't count for anything extra that night, did it? That boy could have been an RK, that's a rabbi's kid. Could have been a PK, a pastor's kid, or an MK, a missionary's kid. Didn't matter. Because that boy could have been, let's see, a cantor in the synagogue. He could have gone to synagogue every Saturday or church every Sunday, and his dad could have been an elder. Didn't matter. The only thing that mattered, the only thing that would save the life of the firstborn male in the land of Egypt that night was the application of the shed blood of the lamb. What a fascinating visual aid that God sent 1,400 years before Christ. Who, by the way, was introduced by John the Baptist with the words what? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Old Testament lamb and the New Testament lamb have an awful lot in common. It's the father's holding the shank bone. I can't help but thinking it's a male of the first year, which would be the male in its prime as Jesus was in his prime. The male had to be brought in on the 10th day of the month. I believe on the 10th day of the month, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday that week. For the next four days, the lamb had to be inspected for blemishes. If your lamb had a blemish, you got rid of it. Did Jesus go through any inspections before his death? Did anybody examine his credentials? How about on the night before he died? Didn't he get put before Pilate, who sent him to Herod, back to Pilate? By the, by the way, not so coincidentally, Pilate says several times in the Gospel of John, chapter 19 through 20, three times, I find no what? fault in him. That's right. Because we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, as first Peter tells us, but with the precious blood of the lamb, as it were a lamb without blemish and without spot. Perhaps the most fascinating thing is the specific areas. And by the way, the lamb had to be killed between the evenings is actually the Hebrew phrase, not in the evening. It's between the evenings. Josephus, a Jewish historian, tells us the proper time for killing the Passover lamb was somewhere between 12 o'clock noon and 2 or 3 in the afternoon. Were they not the darkest hours on the cross? The pissup. The father has the paste in a basin, and the blood is sprinkled in specific areas. It's the, so the blood's here, and then he places it on the top of the door and on the two side posts. And as the blood round down, every home that nice, the blood's here, it's here, it's here, and it's here. 
Every home that night was protected by a bloody symbol of what would take place 1,400 years later when God sent his firstborn and only begotten son to die on such a bloody symbol. The application of that blood not only provided death for one man in one night as it did in the old, but Jesus offered himself through an eternal spirit. And whoever puts their faith and trust in him gets everlasting life because he died for all men's sin, for all, all mankind, for all time, even the ones you haven't committed yet. Unfortunately for me, when I look at the shank bone, I think of the Jewish people that I minister to and a dead religious system that has no answer without Messiah because we don't worship a dead Savior, do we? We worship a risen Lord. To me, this is the saddest item on the Seder plate. Well, at this portion, we would have our dinner. I can't provide that with you tonight. We do Seder dinners as well when you do the whole meal. Uh, That takes several hours. I'm going to take my three and squish it into one tonight, okay? (laughs) But at this point, we would have the dinner, and I just want you to know it's a good time for me to mention a dinner that I have coming up. A week from today, on April 24th, our ministry for the past several years, has been having a banquet at the Buck Hotel in northeast Philadelphia for the unsaved Jewish community. We do have been reaching out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel since 1911, but since the 1990s, we've had a specific, uh, a specific ministry as well among the Russian-speaking Jewish people who've come to the United States. Every Friday night, I speak in English, and my daughter-in-law from the Ukraine translates it into Russian for our Russian-speaking guests. Last year at our Passover, we had 107 people in attendance, and five of them came to know the Lord as their Savior. As a matter of fact, going back over the past five years, praise God, he has used this presentation, and you'll see why specifically after we get to the the final portion. But over the past five years, we have seen 31 people make a profession of faith over those five years at the banquet. So would you please keep us in prayer on April the 24th? It's a very big night in our ministry. Why is this night different from all other nights? It's because God can open up their heart to seeing Jesus in the Passover. All right, that wasn't designed to be a commercial. That was instead of having your dinner, okay? How was it, by the way? You'll, you would have had matzo ball soup. That You would have had either turkey, beef, or chicken. They won't eat lamb any longer. They won't eat lamb for Passover lest the Gentiles accuse them of offering a sacrifice outside the temple, which is no longer standing. So they'll have, they see, eat anything else but lamb. But at the end, they even have a dessert. They eat sponge cake or angel food cake because it doesn't require yeast to make it rise. See, they know how to get around the rules. They have a, a dessert as well. All right, you would have eaten all that. The dinner's over. And even in the Haggadah, it tells me what, I know, that what the kids don't even need to be told. Because the half matzah, it says, the half matzah that was hidden at the beginning of the Seder is now brought out to the, by the master of the house to all people present at the table. It's referred to as the afikomen, a Greek word meaning dessert since it's the last thing they'll be eaten before going to bed. The children instinctively know that whoever finds it, dad will give them a reward. Um, I think... Uh, the Haggadah mentions they give to give the child a coin. Well, inflation has affected, infected everything, and uh, they, they won't go looking for less than $5 now. So, it's an old Haggadah. Anyhow, the, 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 whoever finds it, dad gives them a reward, and then he opens it up of its linen garment, and then he breaks a piece off. 
And I can only tell you that, that my, my mentor, who did happen to be Jewish, we worked at Chosen People Ministries from 1981 to 91 before I was called to be the director at Hananiel Ministries. He said his dad said the same thing every year when he gave out the afikom. And he broke a piece off and he gave it to everybody at the table. And as he did so, he would say, take and eat. Take and eat. Do those words sound familiar? Then I guess it won't be much of a mystery to you if I were to tell you the supper having ended, Jesus took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, take and eat, but he added something. He said, what? This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Well, if this is supposed to be a symbol of the Lord's body, perhaps we ought to take a closer look at exactly what this is. First of all, it's an unleavened bread. Leaven in the scripture symbolizes what? Sin. So the fact that it's unleavened is a good representation of the fact that Jesus' body is without sin. In order for matzah to be matzah, it has to have holes in it. As a matter of fact, in, in an Orthodox home, they spread it out and they put use a, something that looks like a pizza cutter, only it, it intentionally puts holes in it. Apparently, the first batch of matzah must have broke apart. And because if it's not, it's just an unleavened cracker. So matzah, in order to be matzah, has to have holes. Now, this is machine manufactured and cut, but I'm sure you can see, everybody over here, can you see the flame right through the matzah and over here? Everybody see it? And so when you do that and you run it up and down like that, that you end up with a matzah getting both striped and pierced. Gee, a few passages of Scripture come to mind. This is my body, which is broken for you, unleavened, striped, and pierced. Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. Zechariah 12.10, they will look unto me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Isaiah 53, he was pierced through for our transgressions and by his what? Stripes, we are healed. So the matzah, like Jesus' body, is unleavened and it's striped and it's pierced. But that's not all. This particular piece of matzah has taken a journey. And it began in a container called a matzah tash. But my rabbi friend who gave me this, sold me this, he calls it an a unity container, an echad, which means one. And how many layers, rabbi, are in this one container? Oh, there's three in one. Okay, rabbi. What, the, what are the three layers represent in your container? Oh, one rabbi says these represent the three divisions of Israel, Kohen, Levi, Israelite. But another rabbi disagrees with him. Now, there's a shocker. You know the old line, if you get two rabbis together, you'll get five opinions. He says, no, there's a song we sing at every Passover called Echod Miodei. Who knows one? One is the number for God in heaven and earth. It represents the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Fine, Rabbi, why do you only break the middle layer or the God of Isaac? Didn't Abraham and Jacob worship the same God? Why do you break the middle layer of matzah? Answer, we always break the middle layer of matzah when we say the prayer for the bread of affliction. Okay, why do you say the prayer for the bread of affliction? 
Well, we always say for the prayer for the bread of affliction when we break the middle matzah. We just went around in a circle. I don't think he told me why. I think I got a better explanation. I present to you the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Even these three are echad, or one. Interestingly enough, the word echad in Hebrew, uh, it means one, but so does the word yachid. In other words, I could say this is yachid cup, one cup. I could say this is echad cup, one cup. But whenever you have a plurality that makes up the one, it's always echad. For example, in Genesis, for this cause a man will leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and the two become Echad, one flesh. The watchword of the Jewish faith, the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Echad. That's because they want to remember God's one. They don't want to worship three gods like those Gentile Christians. So they say the Shema all the time. But interestingly enough, in that one verse, the word Lord or God appears a total of three times, concluding with the word unity. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what we're, what we're doing here is we're breaking it out of the unity of a three-layer tray, if you will, because I believe what, this is being, what we're doing here is demonstrating how is, how is Jesus broken out of the unity of the Godhead? I don't fully understand it. All I know is that while he was yet alive, he screams out, My God, what? My God, why hast thou forsaken me? By the way, the answer to that question was for you and I. Because nothing short of the spiritual death of the Son of God would have been satisfactory to the Heavenly Father to pay the price for our sin. And so while he's even yet physically alive, he doesn't he say, It is is finished, but that's because he's both God and man at the same time, and I, full, I still don't fully understand it. Do you? How does it, he's both God and man, and yet when, he, yet when, he, when it comes time, best way to explain this is how is he broken and yet not broken? Huh? You know, one of the strange things about the Passover lamb is that when they took that lamb, they had to eat it in one night. There was no leftovers allowed to be remaining in the morning. If they had leftovers, they were to destroy it. But one of the strangest instructions, okay, he had to be brought in on the 10th, examined for blemish, killed between the evenings on the 14th, take the blood, top of the door, two side posts, eat it all in one night, nothing remains in the morning, but they're specifically told not a bone of the lamb's body was allowed to be broken. They do not know why. I think we have an explanation. And it was when Jesus was being sacrificed on the cross. Jesus being Jewish, the next day was a Sabbath. And whenever the Roman government had someone who was being crucified who was Jewish and the next day was a Sabbath, that guy had to be dead before sundown because they couldn't, they didn't want to have a curse on the land based upon the law. And more importantly, the Jewish people wouldn't bury on the Sabbath. That would be work. So they knew what to do. You let the men hang on the cross for several hours, and then what happens is your chest becomes as hard as a rock. And in order to breathe properly from time to time, that person has to push themselves up with their legs. And what happened on the day that Jesus was crucified? What happened? The two men on the cross, then they come along and they broke their legs. And the reason for that is because then it would take their lives from them because they could no longer breathe. 
But what happened? When they came to Jesus' body, what did, it ha- what did the scripture say? They saw that he was dead already, thus fulfilling the scripture. Not a bone of his body would be broken. Do you understand why that's there? That's there as a testimony. That's there as a testimony, and that testimony is this, that nobody, but nobody, took my Lord's life. He chose to die for my sins. And he said that ahead of time. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to raise it again, but no man takes it from me. For years, the Jewish people were accused of being the Christ killers, and that's an embarrassment to the people who said that because Isaiah very 53 is very clear. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Jesus chose to die for our sins. And he did fight, and he was 100% God, 100% man at the same time. And at the proper time, he did dismiss his life at his own choosing. When he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And with that, he gave up the ghost. And then they took his body down off the cross. And after they took his body down off the cross, what did they do with it? They what? They wrapped it in a linen cloth. And then what did they do with his body? They, the father in the Jewish home, he hid it. Give me another word. Now, who told you that? I didn't tell you that. That must have been the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Buried it, right? And we had the first cup. We had the second cup. And at the time, they're about to partake of the third cup. That which is unleavened, striped, pierced, and broken out of a unity of three in one, wrapped in a linen cloth, is now raised back up again to the table, opened up of its linen garments, and distributed with the words, take and eat. What did Jesus say? This is my body, which is broken for you. Oh, I wish I could underline this in all of your texts. This do in remembrance of me. This. You see, I, there's, a, there's a lot more to the story, isn't there? But more importantly, what I just told you is that every year in thousands and thousands of Jewish homes, they are demonstrating the gospel without recognizing it. Isn't that what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15? I present unto you that which I received, that Christ died according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's sad news, but sadder news yet is neither does most of the church, even though we were told to do this in remembrance of me because the adversary would not want this information to be let out. Let me tell you one little story. My mentor he was, a Jew, he was a Jewish believer. He got saved. And one month after he was saved, it was just a coincidence, his pastor happened to witness this presentation for the first time the night before, and it was a communion Sunday the next day. The pastor couldn't help himself. He, t- he, d- he did, he, besides having, you know, this, the, the, the cups on this side and the, and, the, and the bread, and they were using matzah, they put it on this side. He also brought out a simple napkin, and he put three pieces of matzah in it with a linen cloth on top. And he just told what he saw the night before, how the father breaks it out of a unity of three and one, wraps it, and brought it back up again. And all I can tell you is my friend, his new Jewish believer, said, when that pastor took that matzah and went like that, He said he saw his dad doing the same thing every single year without any explanation at all. And he said, this one just all made sense. 
And if it made sense to him, it might make sense to an unsaved Jewish person who might see it for the first time. Our adversary wouldn't want to do this. He would want want so much glory be given to him. By the way, when they passed the communion plate and they were using matzah, he's Jewish and he he didn't realize they were going to have matzah in the church. And he saw it and he went like this. They passed it by and he went, hey, it's matzah. (laughs) He said it seemed like everybody in the world turned around at once and went, oh, what did I do? (laughs) He, He said, To me, it's almost like saying, shh, somebody's dead. Let's not wake him up. You see, Passover is, we have a few communion lessons to learn from Passover. First and foremost, it's fellowship is the key idea. Do you know in Passover, no foreigner or sojourner is allowed to partake of it, only family members only. I think that's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 that we ought to warn people, you know, not to eat or drink to themselves judgment, not discerning the Lord's body. So if you're not a believer, you cannot. Yes, I'm ready, Lord. (laughs) If you're not a believer, uh, you should not partake of the communion. You know, you don't have to be a member of Calvary Chapel. We just know that you you need to be a member of the body of Christ to celebrate the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection with us because we are identifying with that for our redemption. But it also says in 1 Corinthians 11, I think this is for us as well. Maybe this is why we don't have both joy as well as serious business in our, past, in our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Because we're supposed to cleanse out all the leaven. In 1 Corinthians 11, let a man examine himself and then eat that bread and drink that cup. Maybe we ought to take a few moments before we partake of communion each time just to throw out the leaven in our lives. If you're not getting along with somebody from the body, you need to go and apologize and get right with the Lord so that we can have enjoy, enjoy it in, in good fellowship one with another. So uh, in 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But some people might confess sins just like that lady couldn't throw away the leaven. Burying it down in their heart. Burying it down under aluminum foil. Why? Because she couldn't throw out all the leaven in her life because it was too precious to her. Some people might confessing sin to that. Well, Passover has, as it were, a backward look and a forward look. They look back on their slavery, but they look forward to the promised land. With the communion, we look back on the cross, but don't we look forward to the second coming? What are the words? For as much as you eat this bread... I hope from now on you'll remember it's unleavened, striped, pierced, broken, buried, and raised. That's the whole gospel message. And drink this cup, not the first, not the second, the third cup of the meal, the cup of redemption. I'll redeem you with outstretched arms and great judgments. I can't help but think of the outstretched arms of Christ on the cross and the great judgment of sin in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As much as you eat this bread and drink this cup, the cup of redemption, you show forth the Lord's death to when? Till he come. Shh, don't want to tell anybody that. Praise the Lord. That's what we're looking forward to, isn't it? As much as you eat this bread, you drink this cup, you show forth the Lord's death till he come. What an exciting day. You don't, that's a communion service you don't want to miss because it will be the, called, they call it the marriage supper of the, the lamb. And that brings us to the fourth and final cup, the, the one called the cup of praise. And as I look back on this, I can't help but realize that as we throw out the leaven, 1 Corinthians also tells us, let us not celebrate the feast. And that's what Paul says. Let's keep the feast, but not with the leavened bread of malice and anger, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. 
The fourth cup comes with a price. Here it is. It comes with a promise. I will take you up to be a holy people. And someday the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the trump of God, the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. I believe the Lord sat it aside and said, I won't drink this cup again until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom. And that brings us to one final explanation. Every Passover has an empty chair, a knife, a fork, and a spoon, and a plate, and sometimes a very special cup. Nobody's allowed to sit in that special chair because it's for a guest who's invited and he never seems to make it. Do you know who that might be? Not the Messiah. It's Elijah. Because of the passage that Elijah must come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So before we can look for a Messiah, we have to look for Elijah. So before we can conclude our Passover even this evening, which concludes with the words next year in Jerusalem, the young boy who asks the questions always goes to the door and looks outside. We've got to see if Elijah's coming. If Elijah's not coming, we have to close our Passover. So my friend, when he was five years old, went to the door and he just learned all the rules for Passover. He thought he had an Uncle Elijah, and he was taking it really serious. He went to the door, and he looked, and he, I don't see it. Well, he said his mother and his grandmother started chuckling because they know he's not really coming, but you have to, they were gonna, they were gonna have a little fun with him. They said, look down the street. Okay, so he runs back. No, I don't see him. Well, run down the corner. Maybe he's parking his car. So he go, okay. Five minutes later. <sighs> I still don't see him. We'll take one last look, and if he's not coming, we'll just have to close the Passover with next year in Jerusalem. Okay. He takes one last look, and he says, oh, here he comes. He didn't recognize his next-door neighbor, Mr. Thompson, getting home late from work, walking toward the house. But he said when he did come back, and he said, here he comes, he said his mother and his grandmother in unison went, I guess the joke was on them. He said they never let him look for Elijah again. Well, Elijah isn't coming this year, but next year in Jerusalem was a cry that was said right up until 1967 when Israel once again was in their holy city of Jerusalem celebrating the Passover for the first time. We're living in exciting times. I don't know how much time, because part of my ministry, I get asked to do some prophecy messages too, and they always ask me, you think the Lord's coming back soon? I think soon's a very relative term. Jesus' version of soon, we says yet a little while. And it's been over 1,900 years. If he wants to wait another 500 years, I can't tell him he can't. <laughs> but I, never, I know one thing, it's never been any closer than today. I think it's only fitting, everyone, that we conclude this presentation the way they did on the night before Jesus died. It says the disciples went out, and as they went out to the Mount, toward the Mount of Olives, they sang a hymn. That hymn isn't just any old hymn. What the Jewish people sing is Psalms 113 through 118. We're not doing all that. But Psalm 113 through 118, it's called the Hillel or the Psalms of Praise. And in Psalm 118, the disciples were singing these words that night. And think about it right after they had seen and witnessed this for the first time. You know what it is. So join me as I sing. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made. We will rejoice, we will rejoice and be glad in it, and be glad in it. For this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. 
This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. Now, you know they didn't sing it in English, do you? They sung it in Hebrew, and the way you sing, we will rejoice and be glad in Hebrew, just happens to sound just like this. Hava Nagila Hava Nagila Hava Nagila Venismecha. We will rejoice and be glad in it. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you. Let